Welcome back to the Budget and Appropriations meeting. Um, sorry that we're starting late today, and I want to thank uh, the large group of amazing uh, city workers who came out to present. I'm so sorry we're starting a bit late. Um, and we are joined by President Shimon Walton, as well as Connie, Supervisor Connie Chan, who's uh, joining us remotely. Um, even though she's feeling under the weather, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is the April 20th, 2022 Budget and Appropriations Committee meeting. Um, our clerk today is Jeanette Engelhoff, and welcome. This is your first meeting, is my understanding. Welcome to our team at the Board of Supervisors. Um, and then we also have uh, our regular clerk, Brent Halipo, with us. Uh, SFGov TV is broadcasting this meeting. Um, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. This has been a day. This, <laughs> this has been a complicated day. We have a brand new clerk whose name is not Jeanette Engeloff, who is uh, broadcasting this meeting with SFGov TV. We have a brand new clerk named Jessica Perkinson. So sorry for that confusion. Welcome, Jessica. We're so, we're so happy to have you with us. Um, and I will ask you, Madam Clerk, if you have any announcements. Yes, we do. Um, with our return to the chamber, just a friendly reminder that those in attendance to please make sure you're silent, you're, to silence your phones and electronic devices. The Board of Supervisors and its committees are now convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment while still providing remote access and public comment via telephone. The board recognizes that equitable public access is essential and will be taking public comment as follows. First, public comment will be taken in each, on each item on the agenda. This atten those attending in person will be allowed to speak first, and then we will take those who are waiting on the telephone line. For those watching, either channels 26, 78, or 99 on sfgovtv.org, the public comment call-in number is streaming across your screen. The number is 415-655-0001. Again, that's 415-655-0001. Then enter the meeting number, meeting ID 2487-879-8094. Then pound and pound again. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up and the public comment, public comment is called, those joining us in person should, go, should line up to speak, and those on the telephone should dial star three to also be added to the speaker line. If you are on the telephone, please remember to turn down your TV and all listening devices you may be using. As previously mentioned, we will take public comment for those attending in person first, and then we will go to public comment the public comment telephone line. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Email them to the Budget and F Finance Committee clerk at brent.halipa at sfgov.org. That's B-R-E-N-T dot J-A-L-I-P-A at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and also included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall, 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. Madam Chair, that concludes my announcements. Thank you. Can you please read item number one? Item number one 
is a hearing on the citywide street teams and effectiveness on street conditions, homelessness, and people with mental illness or addiction that are having crisis in the streets reporting if the goal is to remove work from the police department and transfer those responsibilities to health and peer advocates to allow the police department to focus on deterring, investigating, and stopping crime as has been accomplished, including the analysis of the number of calls the police department receives per year prior to and after the increase and cre creation of numerous citywide city street teams. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment in, on these items should call 415-655-0001. Meeting ID is 2487-879-8094. Then press pound twice. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Thank you so much. Um, colleagues, I called for this hearing um, uh, because it is a state of, stated and collective goal, something we all agree on in the city, that we want to reduce SFPD's role in responding to calls for service related to homelessness and, and mental illness. And this is uh, a goal that we share with the police department itself. Uh, the mayor shares this goal, the board of supervisors shares this goal, the Department of Public Health, the fire department, the Department of Emergency Management. It's perhaps the one thing <laughs> that across the city we all want to accomplish uh, together as a city. And there's some really innovative and exciting work happening um, in, in this field. Uh, but the reason I called this hearing today and the reason that I asked the budget and legislative analyst to, to look into this issue is because uh, while some of these street teams, and we're going to hear most today about uh, the street crisis response team and the, home, uh, the Healthy Streets Operations Center, but, but mostly focusing on the, on the street crisis response team, um, is that even though this team has been up and running for about a year, uh, it is still relatively new and still not 100% up and running, so all those caveats uh, apply, uh, that the, 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 not only do we have the skirt team, but we have, uh, by my count, 10 street teams uh, funded, uh, nine of which are operating in the city. And, and just for one moment, I'm gonna name those teams the Healthy Streets Operations Center, uh, the HSOC team, the Homeless Outreach team, the Street Crisis Response team, the DPH Comprehensive Crisis Services team, the Street Overdose Response team, the Street Medicine team, the Felton Engagement Specialist team, the Street Wellness team, the Emergency Medical Services 6, otherwise known as EMS 6 team, and then the, the Board of Supervisors funded a, a Compassion Alternative Response team called CART. Uh, but that has not yet uh, been put into operation. So the city has invested in, in 10 teams to address uh, the twin crisis, crises that we have in the city, homelessness and mental illness and substance use disorder uh, that, that is visible and raging on the streets of San Francisco. Um, but what we hear from the police um, anecdotally, and, and, and we'll discuss some of the, the numbers today, there's different stories being told depending on how, how you ask or how you cut, cut the data. 
um, are not seeing calls for service decline. And so uh, this is all with a huge caveat uh, because these are, these are new efforts, they're not 100% you know, in operation, and so I, I just wanna recognize that. But I wanna make sure we're on the right track and that if, we're, if there's anywhere where we're off that we, sh we can course correct early so that we ultimately can be successful because I, I believe we will and can and, and, and are, are starting to be successful. I have very high hopes uh, for, for the way that we're gonna divert these calls away from a, a police response to uh, a, a response by, by medical professionals and professionals that have training uh, to work with people um, that are in mental health or substance use crisis, uh, that we have uh, the appropriate people dealing with homelessness, which is not a crime and should not be dealt with by the police. Uh, the police need to work on uh, solving, preventing, and addressing crime, and homelessness is not a crime. Um, and so we want, we, we want to be successful in this endeavor. So this is not a hearing where it's not a got to hearing. We don't want to, we want to just really have a, a discussion amongst all of us. Um, how are things going? How can we get this right? And then how does that relate to uh, SFPD staffing needs? Um, because the staffing report uh, that was recently heard at the public services, the public Safety and Neighborhood Services Committee uh, relies heavily on calls for service for determining SFPD's staffing needs. Uh, we, need to, we need to understand if calls for service aren't going down and we're investing in these alternate teams, what's going on there and how can we, how can we make sure we're doing this all right? So again, I just wanna start us off on a very positive note. This is not a, a hearing um, uh, to, to criticize anyone. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I think this is some of the most exciting, innovative work happening in our city. And we have some of the most talented individuals uh, at the helm of, of this work uh, across city departments. Um, and I, before we turn this over to the budget legislative analyst to, to, to start with his report, I just really want to thank, thank you all. Um, I, there's so many people in this audience, and I don't know you all, but I am gonna call out the people that I know because uh, I work with you all the time and I know that you, you don't take time off. <laughs> you, you're working incessantly, you're answering uh, the calls of the people most in need and you do it with love and care and respect um, all the time. And it's, gr it's grueling work, it's hard work and I'm just so in awe of all of you. Uh, for the service that you give to these individuals and to our city. I'm gonna call out our fire chief, Janine Nicholson. I'm gonna call out the director of emergency management, Mary Ellen Carroll. I'm gonna call out the director of uh, beha behavioral health at, or at, I forgot, and Angelica Almeida, can you shout out your title? <laughs> Street-based and justice-involved individuals. Angelica, you're incredible. Simon Pang, Roberts uh, from, uh, EM, you know, that, that does all the community paramedic work for SF Fire Department. Robert Smuts, Barry Zevin with Street Medicine, Sam Dodge, who heads up our um, street team, Sergeant Molina, who uh, works with a crisis response team. I, I, and then there's a, a 
a few individuals that I'm so sorry, I either don't know you or I'm blanking on you. Victor Lim from Department of Emergency Management. I literally, I don't usually call out the whole audience, but I, I believe you all deserve it. Um, and I just, I just wanna give you my, my, my deep, deep, deep gratitude for, for, for all, of, all of your work. And with that, uh, if I can turn it over to Fred Brousseau from the Budget and Legislative Analyst to report, and then we're gonna hear from other city departments. Our, our report Madam focuses Chair, on uh, two of the street teams. Supervisor Ronan uh, mentioned um, the nine that are currently in place, but our report focused on the street crisis response uh, team. I'm so sorry, sure. Fred. Um, yeah. I'm getting a text that they cannot hear Mr. Brousseau on the live stream. Ah, okay. Madam Chair, this is Elisa Samer. That we did not hear the first few minutes of that presentation, uh, so the um, presenter may want to start over. Okay, but we're we're good now. Are we okay? And are we okay on slides? Yes, we are. Excellent. We're good now. Uh, Chair Ronan, members of the committee, I'm Fred Brousseau from the Budget and Legislative Analyst Office. I'm here today with Carl Bytel, who is um, attending online to provide a presentation of our report on the police department role in street teams, uh, a report we issued at the request of Supervisor Ronan and that was released yesterday. For this report, we focused on two of the city's relatively new street teams, the Street Crisis Response Team and the Healthy Streets Operations Center. And we focused on those because both of them uh, do involve the police department, um, currently, and, and they have since their uh, advent over the last couple of years. So um, to the question of what is the role of the police department with the street teams and um, is it consistent with the policy objective of the city, which is to remove uh, law enforcement by and large from non-criminal uh, street responses. Um, so turning first to the street crisis response team, and if the slides are ready, this is slide two, but I will continue uh, if they are not. Uh, so this was, the street crisis response team was started in uh, November 2020, and it was designed specifically to replace law enforcement responses to indiv individuals having acute non-criminal mental health crisis on the street. Uh, it was created with a multi-departmental team composed of paramedics, mental health professionals, and community peers from the Department of Public Health, the San Francisco Fire Department, and peer counselors um, come from a contract community-based organization, and they make up part of the team. The, uh, the team responds to calls for non-criminal, mentally disturbed persons 
Um, in police parlance, these are 800B calls. And uh, in the past, they have been um, calls that the police responded to, even though the B designation indicated that they uh, were not, there was no imminent danger to life or property on those type of calls, though so there was a mentally disturbed person involved. Uh, if it was an 800A call, that meant there was a, uh, a more threatening situation. So on that basis, the uh, determination was made that the street crisis response team could respond uh, without police involvement. Um, the calls and dispatch for these uh, for the team occurs through the 911 system run by the Department of Emergency Management. Um, on a third slide, and if it's not on the screen, I know supervisors, you should have a hard copy, so we're on slide three, and it looks like it's appearing on the screen now. But here uh, is sort of a snapshot of uh, an answer to the question of are the police still involved in street crisis response teams? The answer is yes. Uh, you can see on this chart that uh, their role, and they are indicated by the blue line in the middle, that the number of calls uh, to which the police department have responded on 800B codes has decreased somewhat, but remains still a fairly substantial uh, number of calls out of the grand total, which is shown by the bar on the top. On the other hand, the yellow line uh, indicates calls that the street crisis response team have responded to, and you can see that that has continued to grow over time from the uh, first month of their operation, December 2020 through February 2022. Uh, just in that month, the police department took about 515 out of the estimated 1,104 calls received with the balance responded to by the um, street crisis response team. On the uh, next slide, which is on uh, page four, uh, the same information is presented, but in a slightly different way, so you can actually see uh, percentages of calls handled by police versus the street crisis response team. And um, as you can see, when the team started in December 2020, the police took about 85% um, of the calls in that first month, whereas the, uh, CERT, the street crisis response team, responded to approximately 10%. Whereas, uh, as shown on the bottom row, in February 2022, police responded to 46.6% and the street crisis response team 59%. So a substantial number of calls are still being handled by the police department, um, but it has decreased during that time and the, um, and the team's response have increased. Um, I want to say, too, that this was... Uh, by design, there was a one-year plan that the um, street crisis response team put into place, so it was never assumed by them that they were going to respond to all the 800B calls from the get-go. They instead were uh, hiring staff and increased the number of units that could, uh, could respond to these calls over the period from um, November uh, 2020 through last July, and at which point they had six of the seven planned SCRT units deployed. Their plan does include a seventh uh, team, and that is not yet in place. Um, so during all this time, there's been a dual 
coding system. Uh, these 800B calls are sent to both the police department and the street crisis response team. If the street crisis response team doesn't have a unit available or determines it can't take it for other reasons, such as safety, uh, it, it will then be rerouted to the police and the police respond to the calls. The call volume increased in June uh, 2021 uh, when the program was started. There were about 10 to 11,000 calls a year classified as 800B, and that number has gone up. Uh, it, it was about 1,150 on average since last June, June of 2021. And in the months prior to that, there had been about 785 calls. So more of these 800B calls are being received. The 911 call records, unfortunately, don't allow for tracking the exact number of 800B calls to which the police department responds, so we are using the word estimates for um, the numbers we're presenting for uh, police department response. Um, the keys to a near complete diversion from the fire department, and we have interviewed the uh, departments that are here today, fire department, department of emergency medicine, police department in particular, about this transition. And what they report is that the um, the transition should be complete by June 2022, at which point um, the three ingredients that they have needed to make this transition complete should be in place, and that is full staffing for these seven teams, uh, new emergency medical dispatch protocols in place, which will allow the 911 operators to receive calls, make an early uh, determination through their triage process of whether it's a medical emergency or a criminal emergency, in which case it would go to the police if there are criminal uh, elements in it. If not, if it's determined to be medical, it would go to the, um, uh, the CERT team. And then the final ingredient needed is sufficient paramedic staffing to take calls now handled by the police department. So in some cases, a full team response will be determined not to be necessary and a paramedic can be sent instead. And so uh, the assumption is that many of the calls now being directed to the police department and responded to by the police department will in fact be taken up by, the, um, uh, by paramedics. Turning now and on the next slide to the Healthy Streets Operations Center. Uh, this was a, is a multi-departmental initiative uh, started in 2018. Uh, there were other programs in place operated by uh, the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing and the police department that involved these interdepartmental collaborations. But the intent of HSOC was to bring all those departments together and respond to non-emergency or non-criminal calls that uh, dealt with the homeless. And they had two primary goals at the beginning. First was resolving or clearing uh, homeless encampments. And second was uh, addressing behavioral health and mental health issues and providing access to uh, services for individuals on the street. It involved the police department, emergency medicine, public works, uh, homelessness and supportive housing, and the Department of Public Health. The approach, this combined law enforcement and um, access to service approach had some problems early on. There were uh, sort of two different kinds of purposes and it didn't all go smoothly at first, according to department representatives, a 
report by the controller from 2019 and um, input from other community groups. But uh, what has happened over time, rather than the high visibility police presence at uh, encampment clearances, is the role of law enforcement has been diminished, not taken away entirely. Law enforcement uh, still is on the scene for certain encampment dispersals, and uh, when requested by the, H the other HSOC team members, non-law enforcement, when they want to have uh, a law enforcement presence for their own safety. So there is still police involvement, but the numbers have gone down. And on the next slide, we're now on uh, page seven, um, shows, in fact, 311 calls that um, were directed to HSOC since uh, April 2018, and you can see a big drop around April 2020. And this was at a time when a change in policy occurred and uh, a determination was made that some calls shouldn't go to HSOC at all. They, uh, they only dealt with, say, uh, street cleanliness issues and didn't require a multi-departmental response. So in those situations, they're directed um, straight to the Department of Public Works. And you can see sort of the opposite of what uh, we're showing for HSOC on page eight, slide eight, uh, shows calls directed to DPW, that um, many of which formerly went to HSOC. And again, these deal with street cleaning, block sidewalk, and encampment-related issues, but uh, again, not requiring a multidisciplinary response and certainly not requiring a police department response. On the next slide, uh, which is number nine, you can see the reduction in homelessness-related calls that have been directed to SFPD. Now, these come mostly from uh, 911. Sometimes they started as 311 calls and then got rerouted. Um, if there was a concern that uh, law enforcement should be involved. And those numbers have dropped also. The slide on um, page 10 breaks that out a little bit by code, and it's a little hard to see, but the big drop is in the blue line, which is uh, 915 coded calls. Those are homeless-related calls, sort of a, um, a grab bag of issues that people would call in about that uh, pertain to homeless people or encampments, but again, didn't necessarily require a, a, um, a law enforcement response. Police still do respond to calls uh, with these other codes, which include trespassing, wellness checks, suspicious persons, and sitting and lying on the sidewalk. So that summarizes our report. We have one policy option recommendation for the board to consider, and that is that the um, way in which 911 call data is recorded includes a, uh, a more specific and reliable number on the number of calls to which the police department respond. Uh, that number should be dropping considerably in the coming months, uh, and the departments will probably talk about that. But the reason we recommend this still is because this really is one of the main policy goals of the creation of the street crisis response team is to not have law enforcement involved. And um, because of that, I think an important uh, performance measure would be determining that that in fact is occurring and continues on an ongoing basis. And if there is a change and police are more involved in the calls for some reason, that that information would be reported recorded and reported to the Board of Supervisors and um, others in the city. Um, so that concludes my presentation and we're happy to respond to any questions or comments. I think we'll ask the, the major questions um, at, at, at the, 
end of all of those, but I just had one clarification question in case there's any. Um, I think it was on page 14 of your report that you said, or, or let me ask you this first. Can you explain the whole concept of cloned calls? Certainly. Um, clone calls are how the 800B calls are being treated now, and they get this 800B designation. At the same time, they get what's called a 25AO designation, and that's what sends it to uh, the street crisis response team. So they're getting notification of the call at the same time as the police get in their traditional 800B um, uh, regimen. And, um, and then one or the other responds to the call and notification is given to the other party that street crisis response team is um, on scene or responding or the opposite that the police is so that they don't both need to show up um, at the same time. And I don't know if you know this and maybe this is a question for the police department or for DEM, but when there is a clone call and notice is sent to both SKIRT and the police, um, and SKIRT shows up and they, they tell the police, we don't need you, we've got it handled, then do, do police count that in their annual calls for service, which they then use to create their staffing reports? Uh, I believe, and it would certainly be good to have the department respond to your question, Chair Ronan, but I believe those are counted, but uh, they get yet another designation, um, which is 800I. So um, that is for information purposes. It's, um, it goes on the record. Whether or not it's specifically used in uh, staffing calculations, um, I believe someone from the department could probably give you the details on that. Okay, because I understand that um, of all of the engagements that SKIRT has had, they have only called for police assistance in, and this is on page 14 of your report, uh, in 3.6% of those cases, which is correct, which is a low number, which you would imagine, you'd imagine that some, a situation could get dangerous, but, but around 3% of the time, that seems right. That no, that's right, that. and that information came from the fire department, and they, um, so that's where they specifically call them, as opposed to what you're describing, where they show up um, because they get the, uh, the notification or the dispatch, um, and maybe CERT is also on the way, you know, then that needs to be coordinated, but that's a different situation than when they're requested to show up by the team. Okay. Any other clarification questions? No. Thank you so much, Thank Mr. Rousseau. Um, next, I believe we are going to hear from Chief Simon Pang from the fire department. Or from Mary Ellen Carroll, the director of DEM and Robert Smuts. <laughs> um, oh, okay. I'll start over. Um, Thank you. <laughs> uh, this is, I'm Mary Ellen Carroll. I'm the Director of the Department of Emergency Management. Thank you, Chair Ronan, for having us and supervisors. We're happy to be here today. You're going to hear from me and a number of my colleagues. Um, we're, we appreciate being invited to provide a briefing on our street response team. Teams, we, are, we San Francisco, are a national leader in this area, and we have a continuum of responses to support people who are on the streets. 
These responses range from ensuring outreach teams and clinicians are working with people to build relationships, provide care, and make connections to shelter housing and services. Uh, we have interdisciplinary teams that support HSOC, which address health and safety issues in encampments, and our rapid response team that assesses emergencies and critical incidents in the moment. So today we're gonna to be talking about uh, a number of these teams and I am joined by Assistant, Assistant Chief uh, Simon Pang from the Fire Department, Dr. Angelica Almeida from the Department of Public Health and my Deputy Director, Robert Smuts, who leads the Department of Emergency Management's 911 Dispatch Center. Um, we do have slides also, there we go. Um, so we will, today we're going to talk about um, the following street response teams. So EMS 6, which focuses on high utilizing 911 and EMS services. Street crisis response, which is an alternative to police response as we've been talking about or hearing about for acute behavioral health crisis. The street overdose response, which focuses on overdose response and prevention. Uh, the street wellness team, which is an alternative to police response for well-being checks. And then finally, the Healthy Streets Operations Center, or HSOC, which fo focuses on encampment resolutions. Each of these initiatives are collaborations across city departments and community-based organizations and other community partners. And so now I am happy to introduce Assistant Chief Pang to lead the discussion. Good afternoon, Chair Ronan, President Walton, City Supervisors Safai, Mar, and Chan. I'm very grateful to be here to be uh, to have an opportunity to show you the work we're doing. Um, I'm, I'm very proud of the work we're doing. It is an iterative process, and um, I'm also very happy to have a chance to be evaluated. And we're looking for feedback. Um, I wanted to discuss first of all why the fire department is this common thread through these street teams. Um, the first thing is that approximately 21% of all of our ambulance transports are for people experiencing homelessness. Um, so that makes the fire department a pretty big, pretty big uh, care provider for, for those uh, people experiencing homelessness. And also, it turns out that of all of our ambulance transports, approximately 17% of our call volume is attributed to frequent 911 users. These unique, these frequent 911 users account for about 7% of all unique 911 users. So we have a situation where 17% of our resources in the fire department are being utilized by about 7% of the 911 population. So it became clear to us that we could contribute something uh, in, into this arena. And not only are we attempting to improve the health and well-being of all San Franciscans, but our efforts um, are decreasing ambulance call volume and also decreasing emergency room overcrowding. I wanted to discuss why our street response teams are based on uh, it's very difficult for me to both see and read at the same time. It's kind of throwing me off. Um, why our teams are designed to be through 911. 
The first reason is that we really want to take, um, we, we, we want the benefit of the professional dispatchers to be able to triage the calls appropriately so that we can have the right medical response and to make sure that everybody stays safe, not only the population and the patient, but also the providers. We are 911 providers and we are trained in all hazard response. So when we get to the scene, no matter what we might find, we're either prepared to deal with it ourselves or we know how to special call all the resources that the city has to offer to make sure that we can have very uh, 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 timely care provided. Our teams, because of the fact that we are based on 911, we were very mobile. We have extended work hours throughout the night, weekends, holidays. And um, I wanted to mention that our street response teams are primarily linkage teams. They are, we, we are specialized in engaging and connecting people to resources and we've been doing that well. I also wanna say that our teams with the common thread of our, of our community paramedics, we very much believe in the no wrong door concept. So all of our street teams have equal access to, to the city resources. Um, okay, I'm gonna turn it over to Angelica. Next slide, please. And good afternoon, supervisors. Um, so Chair Ronan, as you've already indicated, um, this of course, the street crisis response team implementation is of course a, an alignment of many different efforts, including Mental Health San Francisco that specifically calls for the implementation of the street crisis response team, the mayor's commitment to police reform, as well as community engagement around alternatives to police involvement. Uh, and so we've been very excited to implement the street crisis response team, which is designed to provide a rapid trauma-informed response to individuals experiencing a behavioral health crisis. And in our initial pilot period, uh, crises are particularly happening in public spaces. And so the goal, of course, is that we would initially respond to calls through 911 uh, so that we could divert those calls away from a law enforcement or a traditional law enforcement response. But the goal of this team, of course, is to provide a therapeutic de-escalation support to individuals and really in a holistic way where we have support through the fire department for paramedics uh, to address any urgent medical needs, as well as a behavioral health clinician and a peer or somebody with lived experience to support the individual. We also know that a crisis is very important to respond to, but what we do after a crisis is equally important. And so through this process, we've also invested through our Office of Coordinated Care, a team that's specifically dedicated to the street crisis response team who provides that follow-up to support to individuals that SCRT has had contact with and provides those linkages, which we'll speak more about momentarily. And just to say, we are fortunate enough, while the program is just over a year old, San Francisco has quickly become a subject matter expert at both the national and international level around similar teams such as this. And we've been able to provide support and expertise to other jurisdictions. Next slide, please. This just gives a brief overview about our implementation. So our first program launched in November of 2021. This team was focused in the Tenderloin. Um, I'm sure everyone's very much aware this is where we saw the highest volume of calls based on historical data. Since that time, we've implemented a total of six teams to provide citywide 24-7 coverage. Our most recent team launched in July of 2021. Um, 
And we, uh, in September, had full coverage for those teams, including weekends, so all teams were operational seven days a week. The important thing to note as well about these teams is that while they each have a geographic focus and we wanted to do this in order to build community trust and community relationships, the teams drive around, they look for individuals in crisis so they're not waiting for calls to come in, although their primary role is to respond to 911 calls, but they also deploy dynamically to where the needs are. Uh, so we have a balance of both responding to the communities and building those relationships, but also responding to 911 calls dynamically. Next slide, please. So this provides an overview of our volume of calls that we've been able to handle since the implementation of the program, as well as when each team launched. Um, and as was noted, this scaled up over a period of time. I wanna highlight a couple of things about this graph. The first is that this includes 911 dispatches, as well as on views or special requests or calls that we get from partner agencies, including the police department or a uh, ambulance that might need support or identify a case that's appropriate for the street crisis response team to respond to. The other thing to note is, of course, that you see a drop-off in February and March of this year. Just to note that our teams were significantly impacted uh, by the Omicron surge, and so we had some outbreaks where teams had to be offline. There have been some challenges with staffing, which we are navigating, uh, but we are on the right track to expanding those calls. The other thing I'd like to address is what we know based off of other similar teams across the country is based off of similar um, shifts, the teams can respond to roughly five to eight calls uh, during each shift. So what we can anticipate is when we have seven teams available that we can handle a call volume of roughly 13,000 to 20,000 calls every year. Uh, and that's something that we continue to monitor. Currently, based off of our data, our average is roughly four calls a team a day. Uh, and that's something, again, that's been impacted by teams being offline or staffing issues. And so we're continuing to monitor this, but we are confident that we will be at a point where we're able to handle a very large volume of calls um, in any given year. There are certainly times when the police department has needed to respond to calls. As we've been implementing this program and scaling up, we wanna make sure that there's no delays in people accessing care or receiving that immediate support. Uh, that includes if calls exceed capacity, um, if all teams for the street crisis response team are responding to other calls, um, that that has gone to an SFPD response. Um, and again, we are currently focusing on public spaces. Once we move to the emergency medical dispatch protocol, which we'll be talking about momentarily, that'll take that criteria away, so we'll be responding to all calls, um, and we'll be able to support more individuals that way. And I'll turn it over to Director Spence. Thank you. <clears throat> Uh, good afternoon, supervisors. My name is Robert Smuts. I'm Deputy Director for Department of Emergency Management. My responsibility is overseeing the 911 center. Uh, and we're on the correct slide. Uh, this slide shows two things, the first of which was shown in one of the slides from the, um, the BLA report. Um, and if you look at the blue and red line on this, this shows the percentage of calls um, responded to by respectively the police department and SCRT of the universe of calls that we're looking at, uh, what used to be 800B. Now, I'll note when you look at the final percentages, 59 and 47, that does not add up to 100. That is a, adds up to 106. Um, and a reason, there are a couple reasons for that. Um, the, we asked our computer system, our computer-aided dispatch system, our CAD system, to do something that it wasn't designed to do. Um, and, um, 
it is critical in any uh, public safety response that you always have your first due unit and you also have who's going to respond if that first unit is not available uh, and so forth. We, we generally have a plan going through usually 50, 100 different units uh, to, to plan that out in our response patterns. Um, this is the only example where we have one agency backing up another agency. Um, in all other cases, it's uh, fire department EMS units will back up uh, another fire department EMS unit if that unit is not available or um, on the law enforcement side. And in trying to do this, we had to figure out how to cludge this into place in our, cla in our CAD system. Um, and that we figured out how to do that operationally relatively smoothly. There were a few bumps at the beginning, um, but that, that's going pretty well. There are some data issues that um, uh, exist. Um, I took a deep dive into the February numbers and actually looked at call individual calls on the police side um, and the SCRT side. The 59% for SCRT is pretty solid. Um, I think that represents a pretty close approximation of the percentage of calls that SCRT took. The 47%, I think, um, includes calls that actually police did not respond to. It includes some um, what we call dummy units, which are for specific purposes and a normal call. Um, the way that this process worked, um, when we closed out the call because SCRT res was responding to, it wasn't exactly the way that our procedure would account for for various reasons, and so it, it got counted as a as a police unit assigned to that call when there actually wasn't one. And then there's also an overlap in calls um, that were closed with the disposition, gone on arrival, or unable to locate. And that could be either a data issue or it could be um, a procedure issue. Typically, we will close, if uh, one agency is responding, once they arrive on scene, we will close the call for the other agency. In an example of a gone on arrival or an unable to locate, sometimes the unit does not go on scene. They're driving around looking for the person, and that can result in us not canceling the other call, and so both units looking for the person. Um, so there might be examples of that. Going through um, in, in the deep dive that I had, I think most of, the excess, most of that 6% overlap can be explained away through the, the examples that I just gave. There are a couple of times when, because of this um, system not being intended for this purpose, uh, the dispatchers ended up dispatching both units, uh, both agencies to it. That's a pretty rare example, though. It was slightly more common towards the beginning. It's pretty rare right now. So there is slightly over 100% if you add up both uh, agencies, but most of the 6% overlap is explained away that the police department probably did not actually respond. To uh, Supervisor Ronan, your question beforehand about whether this is being counted uh, in police numbers, most of the calls that SERT responds to result in the corresponding police call being changed to an information call and then closed. And the police department does not use information calls um, when um, doing their, their staffing models. And so those calls would not be accounted for. There are some number of calls that are not changed to information calls but are closed. 
Um, and so there, there will be a couple of, of, of calls uh, per month, um, you know, a couple hundred or, or something like that over the course of the year um, that may be, um, may be counted when the police department wasn't actually responding to. It is, it is, it is a small percentage, though, uh, of, of these calls. So for the most part, it's, it's, uh, it's accounted for. Um, apologize for these data issues. We are in the process of replacing our CAD. It is a very old system. It is um, outdated, not supported by the vendor. Uh, we need to move on to a new system so we can handle this better. Um, so I, I spent a little bit of time talking about why the, the, the numbers uh, don't add up and addressing uh, a, a question the supervisor had posed to the BLA. Um, I want to note a couple other things. Um, the yellow line on this uh, chart, another very important uh, point here. So the yellow line shows the percentage of calls that SERT is responding to of what we projected the call volume would be based on historic data. So historically, we had just over 10,800 bees a year. Um, and so that works out to something like 830 per month. Um, and, uh, and you know, fewer for February, more for, you know, et cetera. Um, and uh, SERT is handling the majority in, in the latest month, 86% of what that projected volume would be. However, the volume increased significantly. And depending on what you use as the last couple months to calculate it on in your methodology, it increased some, somewhere between 35 and 50%. Um, and uh, that has resulted in more calls staying with the police department because there are more calls. Um, and that's, that's one of the principal reasons why the police department is still responding to upwards of 40% of these calls. Um, and uh, um, there are, I'll spend a little bit of time on that. There are three theories that we have for why the call volume really increased. Um, one is um, potentially that um, the call takers at 911, prior to SCRT, there really was no essential difference between coding a call as an 800B or 910B or 799B or something like that. The, the police response would be the same. It conveyed slightly different information to the responding officers, but those, those overlap a lot and there, there would be no meaningful difference. Now, of course, there is a meaningful difference. And one theory was that call takers, you know, attempting to categorize the call in the most appropriate way would use the the, the 800ST, which created these dual codes more often. Looking into the numbers, it doesn't actually appear that that is what's happening. Um, the call codes where you might have expected a decrease because they were shifting over to 800 did not decline. Uh, and if anything, uh, 910, which is probably the most likely, maybe even increased a little bit over this time. So it doesn't seem like this is just a reallocation of existing calls. The other two theories, um, one theory is that there was significant latent demand, that uh, there were these incidents in, 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 the, uh, in the public that people maybe didn't call in because they didn't have confidence in the city's response, but now because of the publicity and knowledge of SERT, people have confidence to call in. That's possible. I haven't figured out a way of testing that, th uh, that theory, so I, I, I can't speak to it. 
that would probably be a good thing, and that would speak um, well to, to, to the efforts. The, other, the third theory is that, for whatever reason, there is a significant increase in the number of people experiencing crisis on our streets. Um, and that is also a viable explanation for why we've seen a 35 to 50% increase in these call volumes. Um, next slide, please. Apologize for the complexity of this slide. I will try to walk us through it uh, and explain. I just want to explain how the dispatch works now and where we're going. So when a call comes into 911 or to police non-emergency, uh, the same dispatchers answer both calls, uh, both numbers, ask what is the nature of the emergency and go through questions like that. Once it's identified that there is a person in crisis, uh, the next step is to ask some, some basic triage questions um, mainly along the lines of, is there imminent danger? Is there imminent danger? Is there some medical issue that's, that's also contributing to the danger? Is there some criminal um, activity that's contributing to it? Is there a weapon involved? And I want to say weapon can be, different people can understand that differently. The way that we try to understand that is there are some things, a gun, a machete, whether it's in the person's hand and they're brandishing it or it's on the table or just present, it's a weapon and we will treat it as a A-level police response. There are some things, um, a pocket knife, a stick, a bottle, that um, can be a weapon if they're being used and brandished as a weapon or could be some utilitarian uh, function. And we will try to get at that. Um, and so a pocket knife is not always a weapon. If a pocket knife is down on the, on the table by the food, it's not a weapon. Um, we will try to, if that information is conveyed, we will try to uh, convey that to the responding units so they're aware, but that would not um, uh, elevate the call to an 800A level. So anyway, so we ask those questions. Uh, if the answer is yes to those questions, um, the, um, it will not go down the route to SERT. It will go either to a, a 800A or some other appropriate police code or potentially a medical code. The answer is no. The current path is um, we get any additional information about the call, and then we enter the call in a way that it simultaneously creates the 800B, which is the police code, and the 25 alpha uh, zero, which is the, um, the medical code, which um, it, the SERT responds to. Um, and when SERT is available, they will respond. That uh, occurs in about 60% of the time. And um, when they are not available, the police respond. And that's about 40% of the time, as we've discussed. So that's the current protocol. The, the change that we are um, planning for um, uh, June is that instead of entering it as the TIDE code, we will, enter, we will use the Emergency Medical Dispatch Protocols, EMD, um, to process the call. And what that means is that there will be no police call associated at all, um, unless, of course, the, the issues that we previously discussed, a weapon, a crime in progress, something like that. There are some times when you ask that question initially, the answer is no, and that either events change or you get a different answer later on. And so sometimes the call is redirected. But assuming that doesn't happen, it gets processed by EMD. EMD is a computer system. It's a, very, a structured um, uh, questioning. Um, and uh, the next question is predicated on the answer to the previous question. And you, you answer, um, you go through that flow. And then it gives us very specific medical code. There are thousands of different EMD codes um, that um, 
uh, all indicate a different, slightly different type of response from the uh, responding units. Um, the different types of responses are either uh, SERT only as a code one response, uh, code one being the lowest um, uh, priority medical response. These are also the only code one responses in the system. Everything else is code two or code three. Um, it could be uh, a code two response where SERT is available. Oh, on that code one response, SERT, um, we could wait for up to 30 minutes for an SERT unit to be available. If SERT is not available at that time, we will dispatch a medic unit, uh, an ambulance. Um, it could be a code two um, where SERT is available. If SERT is immediately available, we will dispatch SERT. If they're not immediately available, we will dispatch an ambulance. Uh, so that call is not allowed to pend. Um, another possibility is that whatever existing response from EMS is, is currently for that, that uh, call determinant, uh, that will be sent plus SERT. That's usually in the case of the person answered, I don't know, to a question. And so it could be that it's a medical issue or it could be that it's a behavioral health issue and so we end up sending both. Um, and then of course, depending on the answers to the questions, it could be just purely a medical response uh, where SERT is deemed not appropriate for that. When this change happens, um, as I said, the police department will not be backstopping SERT, EMS will be backstopping SERT. And so all the remaining um, uh, police responses to 800Bs will stop at that point. Um, I think those are the points that I wanted to make. So I uh, will turn it back over to Simon. Next slide. Our inception date for street crisis was November 30th of 2020. So the very first month in December of 2020, we had one unit um, that we tried to keep in a geographic area, the Tenderloin. At that time, our response time was 17 minutes. Um, our response time has, de has been uh, decreasing ever since, and now it's holding steady at about 14 to 15 minutes for our six units, which are citywide. Next slide, please. This is a slide of the dispositions of the street crisis response team. I want to point out a couple things. First of all, 28% of the time, we have been able to transport someone to care. Um, the operational period here is, is November 30th until I believe March 11th. I can't see it because of the um, closed captioning. Um, and our total population of people here is 4,392. Now, 15% of the time when our street crisis response team personnel get on the scene, they recognize that someone is having an acute medical emergency and they need to go to a hospital. Our vans are not, are not authorized to transport like an ambulance to a hospital, so we have to request an ambulance for that. We consider that to be a win because if we recognize someone has a need that a physician has to treat, we're getting them to definitive care. 13% of the time, we are able to transport someone in our van to a non-hospital resource. This is a very desired outcome. And uh, the bar graph on the right um, shows where we've been taking people to. 
um, psychiatric care. Um, that could be PES. That could be door urgent care clinic. Um, the other in the bar graph, I want to point that out a little, I want to discuss that a little bit. Those are, those are times when we do not have in our drop-down menu of choices uh, a reasonable, a reasonable um, designation for what our teams have been doing. And I, I just have to mention that our teams have been very resourceful. First of all, the other could be the linkage center, but our teams have driven people to the general assistance office for food stamps. They've taken people to pharmacies for med refills. They've driven people back to their housing. And in one occasion, one notable occasion, it, the street crisis response team crew pooled their resources and they, they bought someone a hotel, a family, a hotel room for the night because there were no other options. So our teams have been exceedingly resourceful. And that would be the other category in the bar graph. 60% of our dispositions are the client has remained in the community. And I want to point out that we do not intentionally leave anybody in an unsafe position in the community. There may be times when someone flees the scene and, and we just are not able to follow. But the majority of these cases, the individual is successfully de-escalated. And our, our uh, mental health clinician recognizes that the person has the capacity to make their own choices. And all the resources that we have to offer are voluntary. We cannot coerce anybody to come with us. So if we recognize that the behavioral crisis is over and someone has the ability to make choices for themselves, then we, we have to leave them in there. We have to allow them to stay in the community, even though our most desired outcome would be to transport someone to, to care. Next slide, please. Uh, Chair Ronan, I think you've already made reference to this. this these examples uh, are when the street crisis response team goes to a call alone and they recognize that they do need police assistance. 3.6% uh, of all encounters is 158 times. The largest reason why we may request police is because we feel that there's an immediate danger to, the, to, to, to our personnel or to, or to the public. Passive resistance and active resistance, those situations are for people who are involuntary on involuntary mental health holds, 5150s. Our clinician, the mental health clinician, has recognized someone needs to go see um, a, a, a doctor or a psychiatrist. Passive resistance, what we would say, is someone just does not want to sit down on the gurney. And we may need someone to stand by so we can safely get them to sit down. Active resistance would be someone who, you know, might be... Um, might, might be um, psychotic and, and, and really we need some assistance in getting, getting someone to safely restrained. And traffic danger, I think, is self-explanatory. So 158 times out of 4,392. Um, next slide, please. This here is a, um, a density map of, of our call volume and where it's occurring. As you can see, it's 
It's mainly in the Tenderloin, south of Market, and uh, Castro Mission. And uh, just a point, in fact, the, the white zip code right in the middle of the city, that is the UCSF campus. And they have their own resources uh, that respond to their calls, and that's why it's reflected that they've had no calls um, there. Next slide. I'm, and I'm gonna speak briefly to individuals who have had multiple contacts with the street crisis response team. So as you can see, most individuals only have one contact with the street crisis response team. A, a smaller percentage have multiple contacts. And these of course are our priority for our Office of Coordinated Care to follow up and support individuals, mitigate the risk of future crisis. Um, what we know from our top 10 individuals who have had multiple contacts with the street crisis response team is that 70% of those have been connected to intensive case management, residential treatment, court order treatment. Three of them, we are still having contact with and engaging them and hopefully moving them towards services. Next slide, please. And this goes into a little bit more detail about our Office of Coordinated Care work. This team launched in April of 2021, so after the initial launch of the street crisis response team. But we've had an incredible amount of success with both engaging individuals um, or existing treatment providers, as well as connecting individuals to follow up care. In 54% of cases of individuals we've had contact with thus far, we've been able to connect them to case management services, which can range from low threshold case management to intensive case management or to other residential treatment programs, among many other options for individuals. We really look at this as a whatever it takes and wherever it takes approach to supporting individuals. And these team members include both clinicians and peer health workers, and the team is operational seven days a week, so we're providing that care as expeditiously as possible. Just to note, in February alone, the team was able to follow up with 79% of cases that the street crisis response team had. Uh, so we continue to look forward to refining that work and following up with individuals. But again, thus far, we've had a lot of success and we've really seen that this helps reduce future crisis contacts and we see people stabilize in the community. Uh, so we've had many success stories related to this. Uh, and that wraps up our conversation around the street crisis response team, but I will turn it back over uh, to discuss our next street team. Next slide, please. Okay, switching gears, uh, we wanna discuss the street overdose response team. Um, one of, when someone overdoses in our city, the narrative usually goes like this. They receive bystander Narcan and they may walk off. Or they receive bystander Narcan and, and, not, and first responders arrive. First responders may also give their Narcan and the person may walk away from the scene. The third one is uh, our ambulance may transport to an emergency room. They're seen for a few hours, stabilized discharged and there's no coordinated care for these individuals. So identification of who is overdosing and surviving overdose is something that we really want to tackle. Uh, next slide, please. So we recognize that overdose deaths are disproportionately impact people of color, and people who are experiencing homelessness. And we also recognize that, that certain geographic areas in our city 
have a disproportionate amount of overdose deaths. We recognize this and we're trying to address it. Next slide, please. We saw an opportunity to do something different with our street overdose response team. In 2020, we, there were 711 people died from overdoses in San Francisco. We got that list of names from the medical examiner and we cross-referenced it with the list of people that had been in fire department ambulances. And it turned out that over 50% of the people who died of an overdose had been in our ambulances at least once prior to the date of their death. So we felt that we're having contact with people and we're not taking advantage of that. Now, I've been told by Dr. Zevin that surviving a non-fatal overdose is one of the greatest risk factors of dying from an overdose. And sometimes, I've seen the records, I've seen our charts, we've had some individuals who've survived an overdose only to die of an overdose within 24 hours. Because what usually happens is when someone is given Narcan, they are now in precipitated withdrawal. They don't feel good, and they want to get high again. Also, of the people that died, you know, of the unhoused individual, the, the people who died who have unhoused, less than 1% were on buprenorphine, which is medication, medicated assistant treatment for opioid use disorder. We feel that if we can get people buprenorphine rapidly after their non-fatal overdose, that we can make a difference because buprenorphine, for the first, for 24 to 48 hours after administration of it, wards off overdose. Next slide, please. So the operational period here is since inception date, which is August 2nd, 2021, until April 16th. We've had total calls for service of 1,820. Now I need to explain what we're doing right now. You just heard Director Smuts explain how the street crisis response team gets calls. It's not straightforward. It's very confusing. The tide response, the 800B, the 25 alpha override. Well, we don't want to duplicate that again. So what we have is our street overdose response team. We have one, by the way, working seven days a week, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. They're simply monitoring the radio, the 911 radio. And when they hear overdose or an unknown medical or a person down, they're responding to see if it is someone who has overdosed on, an opi on opioids. In addition to that, our first response teams may be special calling them. They, they may notify them and say, we have someone who just had, we had a Narcan reversal, please come to our scene. So that is how we're getting to these calls. It's difficult, it takes a lot of um, persistence and, 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 and you know, a, a close listen to the radio. As it turns out, by doing this during our operating hours, we've managed to get to 52% of all confirmed overdoses. And when I say confirmed overdoses, it's because an overdose call could be an overdose on aspirin. It, it could be bleach. We're not interested in those. We want, we want opioid overdoses. So 52% of the time we were getting there, we can do better. We're gonna have a second uh, street overdose response team uh, operational on um, June 25th.
Now, of the total 1,820 calls for service, we've successfully managed to find an overdose survivor 1,136 times. That accounts for 772 unique individuals. And we have met people that have had multiple contacts with street overdose, 95 such individuals. Uh, next slide, please. I want to point out that for every person that the street overdose response team engages, we refer them to the post-overdose engagement team, uh, also known as POET. The health department runs the, the, uh, uh, the, the POET. Uh, it is the, the follow-up team for the response team. And here's a bar graph of all the different resources that we've connected people to. Now, this can be redundant. It's, it's, it can be duplicative because someone might take a resource guide and a harm reduction kit. I also want to point out that the resources most often accepted are the ones that require the least amount of behavioral change. And I want to point that out because this is very difficult work. It's very difficult to find someone that is interested in, in treatment. And our team is only as good as our resources. And so, you know, if we, you know, if, if we have treatment on demand, expanded hours, it could it gr greatly help us. I've lost my place here, excuse me. I wanted to discuss also that uh, on, on our other, we don't have to go back, but on our other slide, I had another statistic of 4% connection to buprenorphine. That may seem like a small number, but it's very difficult to do, especially with the workflow that we have now. Currently, if someone agrees to take buprenorphine, which is treatment, and they fit the criteria for it, we have to either get them to a street medicine provider or we have to go to the emergency room and we have to ask the emergency room physician to administer it and to prescribe it. Most ER doctors don't do that because up to now there has been no follow-up and, and they're reluctant to, to, to uh, write a prescription for buprenorphine unless there's follow-up. So we go and we say we are the follow-up team and we're going to have POET do additional follow-up in the days to come please write this person a prescription. They do, and then we have to accompany that person to a pharmacy and fill that prescription and then make sure that they take it. Now this is a process that can take many hours when somebody is not even entirely certain they want behavioral to, to, to change their, 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 uh, their lifestyle. What, what about the program at the BHAC? I'm sorry? The program at the Behavioral Health Access Center. They have a medical-assisted treatment clinic there that's open, well, we and could, there's a pharmacy on the site. Well, that's another route. We could take someone there, but but we're mainly dealing with people on the scene of a 911 uh, scene of a 911 call or at a hospital. So we'd have to take them either to to um, uh, to okay. OPIC or to a pharmacy, or the ER doctor can write the prescription. Now we have a plan to improve this. Um, 
We've been approved for a state pilot for our community paramedics to carry and administer buprenorphine ourselves. So um, it's been approved. We are in the process of operationalizing it. Um, it's gonna require um, some training, purchasing of the buprenorphine, and a few more high-level meetings with, with the state and local EMS. But I would estimate July would be when we would be able to administer uh, buprenorphine ourselves. Next slide, please. Okay, street wellness response team, switching gears again. So this was first, this is designed as an alternative to police code 910B, which is a check on well-being, B priority, meaning no violence, person is not violent, and, and they don't have a weapon. Our start date was January 24th. So we have not been operational for very long, but early, um, early data shows that this is gonna be an extremely versatile team. Next slide, please. So the street wellness response team, uh, that is a collaboration between the fire department and the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. The composition of the team is gonna be a community paramedic and an EMT and a hot team outreach specialist. Our, uh, currently our team has been, has been dedicated for the majority of the day to the Tenderloin Joint Field Operations. So most of our calls have been what we call on views. Now again, we're in a pilot process with the street wellness response team as far as how we're going to be how we're going to be attached to calls. We know that eventually we want to be part of the, uh, of the EMD FRAS pattern for a number of calls, but we recognize that we need a period of time where we can get some data and understand which calls are most appropriate for the street wellness response team, which calls we can go on safely. So the instructions for the street wellness response team are to on view people. Anybody you see on the street, that looks like they need to be checked on. If not us, who is going to deal with this person? It's gotta be us. So on views, but we also want to go on, on uh, 911 medical calls for unknown medicals, persons down, and also police requests for ambulances because we feel that those three calls often are 910Bs. So what we found is First of all, our, the providers on the team currently are star performers and they're working very hard. They've, been, uh, they've had about 12 contacts per day. We're working 6 to 6, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., seven days a week currently. And these are the dispositions of, of what we found. About 3% of the time, we've recognized someone needs an ambulance. And about 23% of the time, we've managed to get someone to non-emergent care. So that's a total of 26% of the time that just by walking up to someone, because the majority of the calls up to now have been on views because we're dedicated to the Tenderloin right now. We have given the team instructions to start monitoring the radio, go on some 911 calls, and let's see if we have similar results. But I'm, I'm very optimistic that this is a, a team which is gonna be able to really get people you know, to care that they need.
Oh, I wanted to mention that the, the N here, these are 817, all these percentages are based on 817 actual encounters with, 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 uh, with people. It's an average of 11.2 contacts per day. That of these 817 encounters, there, are, there have been at, at least 514 distinct individuals. I say at least because we have a lot of John Doe's. So we might have more. And there we have people who refuse to give their name. So we have at least 514 distinct last names. And, and during this time period, we've also had um, 91 individuals that we've had multiple contacts with. So we recognize that, but we also realize that for some folks, it, re it, it requires multiple contacts because we have to build up rapport in order to get trust so that they are willing to go with us to a shelter, to a clinic, to treatment. Okay, next slide, please. I wanted to end with just a few comments about the, the four street response teams that the fire department is a part of. I know there are a lot of teams in our city, but the ones that we are a part of, we're really working hard so that they are not siloed, so that they're working collaboratively and in a centralized way. All of our street teams, EMS6, Street Crisis, Wellness, and Overdose, we share um, a data platform for data collection. And our teams are aware of who's been hit by which teams and how often. Not only that, but each of our teams are pushing information into the Health Information Exchange EPIC, as well as our partner agencies, the Health Department, Health Right 360. And all of our teams have dedicated follow-up teams. Office of Care Coordination for the Street Crisis Team, POET for the Street Overdose Team, and for Street Wellness, Hot Case Management. If we should find somebody who meets uh, housing referral uh, um, priority status, we have Hot Case Management that will, that will uh, take over. So, you know, it, we can always improve, but we feel that, that uh, we're working towards um, uh, a we're, we're working towards um, knocking down barriers that's going to prevent us from working collaboratively. And in, in real time, every day, our teams are constantly on the phone coordinating, and we're getting the job done. I know it's, it, from an outsider's point of view, it may seem that it's not happening, but I just have to tell you that, that it is. And I think that's, next slide, I think I'm done with my piece. Yes, okay. Okay, two more slides will be fast. Um, HSOC is our encampment response uh, team, which most people are pretty familiar with, but for the record, we'll just talk very briefly. HSOC is a multi-agency team that is comprised of outreach specialists, social workers, community paramedics, street cleaning crews, crews and police officers who work in collaboration to address large encampments in the city. The HSOC team assesses the needs of people and offers to connect them to available services and resources while ensuring street, public streets are safe and accessible for all to use. Um, 
An important component of HOC is consistency, meaning that the teams visit areas that are prone to encampment on a regular basis. This helps address re-encampments in the short term. However, San Francisco's efforts to bring thousands of units online, in addition to efforts to address societal issues at all levels of government, will obviously pay greater long-term dividends for HSOC. And then finally, next slide. Um, this, I just wanted to, um, we've heard a little bit about this, but I do think it is really important. You've gotten to see a little bit what goes on behind the curtain and understand how, what happens when you call 911. And this is a question that many residents and visitors and businesses ask who to call when they see someone in crisis. And we wanna make sure that people do make the right call to get the right help. Um, and first of all, as we've stated, calling 911 in San Francisco gives you access to the highly trained dispatchers that can send help for police, fire, and medical emergencies, and including crisis response for people who are having mental health crisis. Very importantly, the questions that dispatchers asked um, are important so that they can assess um, the most reasonable or the best uh, response for what the crisis is. Uh, and as we heard, if someone's having a mental health crisis, they do not cause a risk to themselves or others, the dispatchers can send the crisis response team. And conversely, if a dispatcher dis determines a person is having a medical emergency that requires an ambulance, that resource will be sent first. And then finally, if a dispatcher dis determines there's a life or safety risks to others, then law enforcement will be dispatched. And so this again, just to reiterate, is why dispatcher, the 911 um, dispatch uh, call takers will ask 911 callers specific questions. Um, and often people just call and say, I want crisis, but we really are asking the public to just bear with us, answer the questions so that we can get the best uh, resources out. So that concludes our presentation and we're all available here and others to answer any questions you have. Thank you so much and colleagues, thank you for uh, sitting through the, the long presentation on the public. Uh, President Walton. Thank you so much Chair Ronan and thank you everyone for the presentation. I, I do have a couple of questions and I guess my, my first one is, uh, it seems like just from you know, anecdotally, and I know we talked about this before, that one of the reasons why we could still see high rates of police response, uh, even though we see uh, increase also in skirt team response, is because of the phone number still being 911. Where's the conversation now in terms of getting a dedicated phone number for these type of non-police responses? Because I. I know out in community, there are, there are people who also refuse to even reach out um, and, and call in skirt because they don't want to uh, accidentally get a police response. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, President Walton. Um, I, I wanna take that question in two parts. The first is um, I think that there, the, the, the reason police still respond to um, the calls that are eligible for um, a skirt response is because we are in phase one in where when skirt is not available, 
it's designed for having the police respond. And that doesn't have to do with the, with the number that was called to get there. It has to do with the design of the program and who's backing that up. And that will change completely in June. In June, uh, for an SERT eligible call, police will no longer respond, just flat out. Um, the, the, the backing will be uh, if SERT is not available, and they will have that seventh team at that point, um, EMS will respond and ambulance will respond. The second point um, where I, I do think that it is, we take that, that point very seriously, that uh, there undoubtedly are quite a number of people in the community who are, who are uncomfortable calling 911 because of our association with law enforcement. Um, and you know, perhaps when I was talking about the speculation for why call volume increased, I mentioned that one theory that we have is because we've been talking a lot about SERT and maybe people are more comfortable calling, we might get even more if, um, if 911 is not the route that they have to follow to get to SERT. We are working and, and we do have a, a plan in place um, and for having alternative routes um, that uh, can process uh, calls in a manner that is, to our point of view, safe um, and can make sure that there are no other medical issues involved, which is one of our primary concerns uh, for a caller. Um, so we, we, we do have something in process for addressing that. Um, I'm not sure I'm the person who's, who would be best to speak to that in detail, um, but I can say that we do take that, that point seriously, and that is something we've been working very hard to address. And then I, I know you said, and I think it's slide eight, because I did have a question about more uh, just skirt capacity, and you kind of touched on this when you talk about um, in June that if a call is skirt eligible, PD will no longer respond and EMS or ambulance will come out if skirt is not available. So it seems to me from a capacity standpoint, we need more skirt teams or more skirt team members. So I'll um, maybe ask uh, Angelica to come up as well, but in rough numbers, if there's a 50% increase, we're talking about 15,000 calls a year. Um, right now, uh, Skirt is handling the equivalent of about 9,000 of those, 60%, uh, 60%, meaning that another um, 6,000 are not being handled. Um, if we add a seventh team that, that builds capacity, you know, the math is easy on that, 60% to 70%. Um, and then I think Angelica can talk about some of the, the increased um, calls that each team can handle to get beyond that. And then there's also a portion of calls that when we switch to EMD will not have an SCRT response that based on the questioning that we do will go directly to medical. Unfortunately, we don't have a good, we don't have a solid estimate for what percentage uh, of those calls will be. Uh, we need to make the change. But some percentage of these calls we do anticipate just having a medical response. And I don't know if, Angelica, you want to contribute. And just to echo, I think some of this is really difficult for us to estimate. It is such a huge system change, which is very exciting. And also, we, we don't know what volume of calls will go to an ambulance versus an SDRT response. And some of that is we'll need to monitor that very closely in early EMD implementation for the street crisis response team so that we can address any latent demand um, and talk about the need for expanding the street crisis response team. But what we can anticipate based off of national standards is for similar shifts that seven teams 
can handle 13,000 to 20,000 calls a year. So we anticipate being able to handle uh, the demand that we're anticipating, um, but it's, it's unclear and we won't know till we're there completely. And we'll need to make sure that we continue to have an open dialogue with the board around that. And just to add, looping back to your first question, if we are successful in having an alternative way of accessing this, if there is more latent demand and call volume continues to go up, that obviously will change the equation. We might have to have that conversation, but where things are in the, in the data that we do have right now, um, this is, this is our, our, we've explained our, our, our logic. Thank you. Thank you. Chair Rohn. Supervisor Maher. Thank you, Chair Ronan, and thank, thanks uh, yeah, to everyone for, the, for this really informative presentation on such an important um, initiative here in the city to, to shift away from uh, police and law enforcement response to uh, these types of calls for service to, to, to more appropriate and hopefully more effective ways to respond to them. Um, I, I just had a few questions. Um, actually, mo it's more focused on the outcomes because I really appreciate it, you sharing all the, um, you know, the updates on, on the implementation of, of these different street response teams and, and some of the data. And, I, and Commander Pang, you, you, you emphasize this is an iterative process and it's still a work in progress. But I have some questions about the outcomes, like starting with the street, street crisis response team. And um, it looks like uh, from that one slide you showed, 28% of the encounters so far result in transport to care. Um, either to a hospital or to, to non-ambulance transport for various um, types of service, including psychiatric care. Um, I was just wondering how you, you guys evaluate that. Is that, do you feel that 20, because in the, the roughly, um, uh, is it 72%, uh, is that math right? Yeah, that, that are not resulting in transport to care. Professor, could you, the question is, how did we come up with oh, our data? No, it's, I guess, how do you evaluate that? Was that, did you, were you expecting to be able to um, hopefully connect um, folks that, that are being responded to by the SCIRT team to, to care at a, at a higher rate than 28%? Also, this is in, in line with what we anticipated. Um, national standards is roughly 70% of individuals remain in the community. We're at 60% of individuals remain in the community. Um, so in a lot of ways, we're more successful in being able to transition people to immediate care. Um, of course, this will, will anticipate that this will change as new services through Mental Health San Francisco come online, including SOMA Rise, uh, the Crisis Diversion Unit, et cetera. Um, so we're really looking forward to being strong partners in those work and having those additional resources that will be available 24 hours a day to support the, these teams. It's also why we very intentionally included a dedicated team to provide that follow-up. So even if somebody's not immediately transported to another facility, that we're providing that follow-up in the community. And again, we're having great success with that. Um, and so that's something that we'll continue to monitor. And I'll just say in terms of evaluation, we have two different evaluations happening for the street crisis response team. Uh, one, we're expecting our year one uh, report to be coming out in the next couple of weeks. And that's through Harder and Company. But we also have uh, another grant through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and we're anticipating a report in the fall for that. And that's really going to be looking at outcomes for individuals that SCRT has served, um, including looking at outcomes in any reductions in crisis contacts, hospitalizations, jail contacts, 
ongoing connections to care, and I think very importantly, looking at that stratified by demographics, including gender and ethnicity, so we can truly understand the impact and any shifts that we need to make in the program to better serve the community. That's great to hear about the um, independent evaluation that's happening, especially since this is such a groundbreaking effort and it's a model for other areas. Because uh, I, I had a similar question around the follow-up to the skirt um, responses and with the Office of Coordinated Care. So it looks like, I mean, it's good to see that 34% um, of the clients have had follow-up of different types, but that still means two-thirds. It sounds like um, there, there's no follow-up. Well, I'll say um, there's also in 32% of cases, individuals have an existing provider in the community. And so that's an individual that we're able to coordinate with, make sure the person is receiving the appropriate care, address any barriers that exist for that individual um, accessing care. So in roughly 66% of cases, there is follow-up with a treatment provider or directly with the individual. Um, and this number, I'll say, has increased over time. So this is cumulative since the Office of Coordinated Care launched for the street crisis response team in April. Um, but in February, we had contact um, or follow-up in 79% of the cases. Great, thank you. Um, thanks, Joanna. Thank you. I wanted to follow up in a little bit more detail on Supervisor Mar's question. Um, so, you know, the, the one of my concerns is, um, and I know that, you know, uh, that we can't force people to, to engage in care if they don't want to and if they're not 5150 eligible, but I'm, I, with this 60% of individuals that remain in the community after an encounter with SKIRT, um, I am worried how, I, I, I'd love to know how many of these individuals get a case manager through the Office of Coordinated Care. And my understanding is that the critical case management function that was created in Mental Health SF uh, hasn't started yet. But the idea with the critical case managers is that they were going to be engaging, you know, hopefully daily with, with members of the community that were service resistant and, and start developing a relationship over time to understand how to engage them into care because it, SKIRT is coming on an emergency basis once in a while, but not necessarily uh, engaging regularly with that person. So that, is, that seems so critical to this effort and um, is a piece that I'm not sure it, it has happened yet. And if it hasn't, I'd love to know the timeline on that. Um, absolutely. And as we work to expand our case management portfolio, including critical case management, traditional intensive case management, low threshold services, et cetera, that of course will increase our ability to connect individuals to care. Um, I will say for our dedicated SDRT OCC team, we really strive for, to have contact and to outreach every single individual um, who has had contact with the street crisis response team. Again, we particularly prior prioritize individuals who have had multiple contacts with the team, um, knowing that they're at greater risk for crisis or have gone to the hospital or another social behavioral health setting so that we can ensure that ongoing, those ongoing services. Uh, but since our team launched in April of 2021, 43% of individuals have been connected to case management of some kind. So whether it be low threshold case management to intensive or linkage case management. But that follow-up touch from OCC after an encounter with SKIRT, is that a one-time touch? Is that a... 
Not necessarily. So we, and again, we look at this as a whatever it takes and wherever it takes approach that we will meet with people as long as it's necessary to connect them. Of course, there are some individuals that we're not able to locate um, after their initial contact with the street crisis response team, but we outreach individuals multiple times, provide that bridging case management to successively transi transition them into ongoing care. And of the individuals on slide 13 that had multiple encounters with SCIRT and you said the top 10, do all of those individuals get assigned a case manager that proactively is working and getting to know the individual? Yes, 70% of those individuals, or, or seven, because we're talking about the top 10, have been connected to case management. Three have not accepted case management, but our OCC team are having regular contact with them to build those relationships and transition them and work with them until they're ready to transition to other services. Okay. And so we've had contact with 100% of them. And with those top 10, for example, when the critical case management system is begun, will they all get a critical case manager? They will absolutely all be offered that and we will work to engage those individuals. And with some individuals, we have that relationship. And so we'll, again, overlap as much as necessary uh, and support individuals so that they can successfully have that connection so that they're working with that critical case manager on an ongoing basis. And does the person have to accept? So the, the critical case management, you know, sort of theory is that this person is just regularly trying to form a relationship. So the person doesn't necessarily have to accept that person because they might not accept that person right from the get-go. Absolutely. But the, okay, I just want to yes, make sure. Yes, no, that. absolutely. Okay. But again, but we will meet with people as long as it takes and sometimes it's not a good day for them and we continue to work with them and use a lot of different tools to build those relationships. Okay, and then the, you know, also the individuals who uh, survive an overdose um, are they offered, you know, case management? And for people that are at high risk of, um, you know, a, a subsequent overdose, do they, again, this, this critical case management function in Mental Health SF was so important because we know that individuals don't accept this, this, these services right off the bat. And so the idea is by being proactive and forming a genuine relationship with them, over time you can do that. And so I'm curious, is that happening? And I'll defer to Dr. Zevin on that. Thanks. Um, Barry Zevin, uh, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, the the uh, post-overdose engagement team is um, not a formal case management team. Um, we don't, uh, for the most part, use that language in uh, our street medicine program, but it is a, program, the, the, essentially every one of those people are added to our list. They stay on our list for a year, whether that we find them or not, whether they're engaging with us today or not, they're on the list for continuous follow-up for a year. Um, what we're attempting to do is engage them into a comprehensive primary care uh, relationship. What we're adding is additional um, uh, support that is not necessarily from a, a, uh, a doctor, but is someone with, who is going to, we're not gonna use the term case management, but the people who are doing it are gonna use the term case management because that's what the relationship is. And essentially it's care coordination, but it's being there 
what is the next step in terms of reducing your risk of having a fatal overdose? And our, our program as a whole is very oriented uh, toward any, any kind of improvement in health, which means that if some, most of these folks have co-occurring medical problems, co-occurring mental health problems, along with their substance use disorders, we are addressing all of those problems, um, eventually stabilizing those folks where they may be able to get care in our uh, uh, conventional case management programs, uh, mental health clinics, primary care clinics. But while they're uh, with us and not at that level of stabilization, they're continuously on our list. And it's, yes, we, we ask people each time whether they will consent to talking to us and working with us, but it's not a matter of uh, uh, the, if 10 times they say, no, I don't need you today. They're still on our list. They're still, we're still working with them. Um, so it, it's not a, uh, we've got to, you've got to sign and then we'll talk to you. Um, I, I hope that answers the question. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. I just have um, one more set of questions and then I know Supervisor Safai and Chan also have questions. Um, this is a question for Miss um, Grafenberger. For um, the the slide for the budget and legislative analysts eight that shows that there that really a ton of the calls that used to go to HSOC are now going to DPW. Um, I I I don't imagine that DPW got any additional staff to to deal with that. I mean I know when you know my office reaches out to HSOC for assistance, um, we, we talk directly to Mark, we talk directly to Sam, and we, and, and we often talk directly to DPW. I know DPW, you know, if, if there's no space in the system for individuals in an encampment, oftentimes the only thing HSOC can do is work with DPW to sort of make the area, uh, you know, cleaner, safer, less, less expansive. Sam, please feel free to come up. But I, I'm, I'm worried uh, about this slide because, you know, as we are trying to engage DPW to get ready to enforce the street vendor legislation, they're just at capacity. And we just keep adding more and more work onto DPW without any additional personnel, any additional funding. Um, Supervisor Sam Dodge, uh, Department of Emergency Management, but I am pretty familiar with this system and I worked for Public Works for a long time and as well kind of looking at these similar problems. And I did try to explain this to the budget legislative analysts, but I think it maybe just was a little bit confusing for them and everyone. But uh, when the CDC issued warnings about, you know, dispersals of encampments during uh, the COVID um, pandemic, they um, <clears throat> 311 started to issue a pop-up screen in their 311 app about when you start to put in a, a, a concern about an encampment stating these CDC guidelines and the in the policies of San Francisco about removal of encampments <clears throat> what a lot of people have done is use the 311 app and look at other similar 
issues that they could report the encampment as. And so some of them are blocked sidewalks and other sorts of, sorts of things. So um, it's not like the calls were moved from by 311 from one category to another, but it was more like um, user initiated um, using other, other sort of levers they could pull in the city. You know, on the back side, this is one of the things that HSOC can help with. We can reallocate uh, amongst ourselves when issues come up that when they look through and see the picture that's been sent by the citizen about a situation, we can reallocate it back to HSOC or it's, that it's actually a, a homeless concern, it's actually an encampment concern. So this is part of what HSOC can do is just help between departments solve issues and make sure that we're sending the right resources and not the wrong resources. So we are still able to assist public works and not sort of wasting their time, um, so to speak. Okay, I guess I just wanna highlight, and, and Sam, thank you so much. You do such an amazing job. And I know, I, I know, I, I have, my staff and I have seen you out on the streets at all hours cleaning up yourself. So I know you, you, you do a lot of um, street cleaning work yourself. So I just, I just can't thank you enough for, for everything. Um, but I, I, I just want to flag for the Budget and Appropriations Committee that I, I do think we're continuously putting more and more work on DPW, and it's perhaps the only uh, around these issues, and it's the only it's it's department that isn't doesn't actually have a team <laughs> to 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 deal with this, you know, in in a similar way. So I just I just needed to, I saw that slide and I needed to flag it for the for the committee. Um, and then my, my last set of comments slash questions is, you know, I wrote a letter to the police chief and uh, about, you know, work of their officers, and he sent me a letter back uh, on March 24th in which he, you know, lays out the number of calls for 800, 801, um, you know, anything involving mental mental illness or, or substance use disorder. So 800 calls, mentally disturbed person, 801 person attempting suicide, 806 juvenile beyond parental control, 5150 mental health detention, 800 CR mentally disturbed person, weapon or potential for violence, 801 CR person attempting suicide, um, and then check on well-being. And, um, you know, showing from 2019 to 2021, that those calls have pretty much remained consistent. And so, you know, I, again, it's just we're spending an enormous amount of time and money and energy on 10 street teams. And, and as I said in the beginning, they're not all up and running and this is still a work in progress. But I do think that we have to be looking critically and making sure that we're, we're we're, we're lean, mean, and, 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 and effective. And, and part of me worries that like, if, 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 if to the public it looks like things get consistently worse on the streets, not better, if we're not successful in getting a, you know, a, a large amount of people into care, if the calls for service for police are not declining, and if we add more and more money to all of these units, like there has to be a point in which we look at the entire system and say, what are we, what are we doing, <laughs> you know? And, 
And that is, and that is, I, I'm not there yet, but I am, but these statistics worry me. And, and I have been out on, you know, ride-alongs with the EMS and skirt and the police. And, you know, I've done all the ride-alongs and the, the individual work and, you know, Barry Zev, Dr. Zevin is a legend. The individual work is phenomenal and, and the respect and, and, and the way that all of you, you and your staff, um, are treating people that are very sick and, and these are not easy illnesses to, to address and, and it's not one go and one and you know one treatment and done. It's it's a it's a long term process. And I understand that. I just we've gotta make an impact. Um, and and we're investing so much time, money and energy. And you know, by this time next year, we've we've gotta see movement. Um, be, and, and, and that's why I wanted to call this meeting and this hearing now, because uh, I called it last year and the year before that, and we didn't have all these teams up and running in the same way. Um, but now that we have one a year into development, almost fully staffed, we're gonna have the others that next year at this time will be a year old. We have got to see movement in, in the numbers. Um, and, and, and the public has to feel a difference in the street um, because otherwise we're gonna lose all, any goodwill we have left for you know, investing so much money as I think we should be, uh, but, we, but, but it has to start to, to, to produce results. Um, so with that, uh, those are, I will shut up now and Supervisor Safai and then Supervisor Chan will be next. Uh, thank you, thank you Chair Ronan. I just have a few questions, most of my questions were asked, but one of the things that's not making sense to me and I, and I, I have seen this played out because I've personally called the street crisis response team on a couple of individuals, they still remain on the street and the data that I see here on page 13 it says repeat SR skirt clients. What time period, it says DPH avatar data through 331 21. 2,928 I guess contacts or encounters with clients. And then it says one encounter only 81%. But then when you go, and then when you go back up to your page on your slide on the previous two slides, it talks about street crisis response teams, you know, the people that you're transporting to the hospital, other, and then it says remain in community. 60% remained in community. So how is it possible that you're only interacting with people one time, 81% of the time, and then 60% of the people that you're responding to remained in the community? How is that possible? Can someone explain that to me? And I can tell you, I, and, and again, this is not a criticism. I'm, I'm happy with the work that you all are doing. I know it's having an impact. But in, in my district alone, I literally have called a couple of times. Those individuals still remain on the street. So that they can't be on, the only, you know, the, I, I don't have the same volume that Supervisor Ronan's district has or some of the other districts that you have highlighted here on the map. But we do have a, a, some what I know you all refer to as frequent flyers and they remain on the street. They do get transported at times to the hospital and they're still on the street. So I, it do, this doesn't make sense to me. So if someone can explain how 60% of the interactions you have 
rem these people remain in community. I'm assuming that means they're remaining on the street. And then yet 81% of the interactions that you've had are only one time. That doesn't, that doesn't add up to me. Uh, Supervisor Safayi, I apologize. The, the slide on page 13, um, that's not a slide that uh, I created. And uh, Dr. Almeida just had to leave for childcare, but she'll be joined remotely as soon as she can. She could perhaps address that slide. For the other slide that Cause, shows. Cause I, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to, this is not yeah. a gotcha. It just, yeah. th this just doesn't make sense to me that you all would only have encounters one time with 81% of the people that you're encountering on the street. Something doesn't make sense to me about that. That, that just doesn't make sense. And then you see up here where you, know, you highlight 28% of your encounters re, uh, you know, result in transport to care. That makes sense to me. That seems a, a plausible based on what we're seeing. Psychiatric obviously being the highest percentage of transport, shelter, sobering, all that. 60%, I understand we need more services. There's not enough. People can refuse those services. But then to just see that you're only interacting with people 81% of the time, one time, something, something's not making sense to me there. I, I can't speak to that. I, this so data, let me just ask you, yeah, this an, data is an, pulled an, from, anecdotally, yeah, your teams were out on the street. Would you say that eight out of 10 times you're interacting with people, it's the only time you're interacting with them for the first time? Does that make sense to you? What makes sense to me is I know that they did a data poll straight from the database, and okay. and this is this is what what this is. Yeah. So so these these are the numbers. It's too bad the person that I, you know I, I waited patiently. <laughs> Maybe we could go to supervisor. Yeah. Yeah. Come back to supervisor. And then come but back. But that was like my that yeah. is my only question other than all the other questions that were asked because I, I want to understand it. The way you've laid out, the way the calls come in, I think that's important. I mean, we might have disagreements on 911 versus 311, but I think you need to have one system that you're calling. People know those numbers. There might be some, there might be some anxiety or resistance, but I think the way we've, over the last 20 years in the city, We've designed a call 311 or call 911. We don't want to overwhelm people with numbers because then people forget and they won't use it. So we have to figure out a way to route. And it seems as though you're, you're doing on the slide that you've identified here. This makes sense to me. The, the callers are the ones that are screening for where to triage or where to redirect people to the right place. That, that makes sense to me. And I think that that's why we're seeing, um, you know, the number where it says here on the slide, the other one that says 3.6 only result in a request for police because it sounds like they're being routed in the proper manner. And that's, that, show, that shows the, the hard work that the, the call folks are doing in terms of routing. But this part does not make sense to me. I, I, I have to say, even without having the person come back, I can tell you that that number does not make sense. It does not play out. And on Supervisor Safahi. Yes. This is Dr. Almeida. I apologize that I had a transition to join remotely, but I can answer your question. Okay. Uh, so this is, this is accurate data in terms of the 81%, but, but to your point, there may be some cases where we don't have identifiable information 
to know that they've had contact with our teams before. So this is based off of the best data that we have available. And that's something that we're always trying to refine in our follow-up to better identify individuals so that we can truly track the impact and who's had multiple contacts. So, so maybe we can talk for a second when you have an encounter. I heard you say there's some individuals that won't give you their name or can't or, or refuse or so on and so forth. How are you doing the data collection? Because that might be skewing this um, in a way that just doesn't seem to make sense in practice. How, what, what so we track every... Go ahead. We, we track every encounter that we have. And so we use every tool that we have available to us and every electronic health record to be able to identify individuals for similar games birth or aliases. And so we track that very closely. And whenever we know that somebody or have identified that somebody has had contact with a team before, we correct that information so that we have that true, true data pool. We also work to merge charts so that we can manage that. Uh, but there are some cases where we're never able to fully identify a person. And so if you're never able to identify them, do you put them in the one encounter category? Well, we, they get coded as they have a number attached to them so that we can track that information. But if they had a subsequent encounter and we still weren't able to identify them, we wouldn't be able to merge those records to know that they had more than one encounter. How, how often are you not able to collect any, any data on the people that you're interacting with? <laughs> You know, Supervisor, I appreciate that question. I would be happy to get that information and get back to you on that. Well, that, that seems to be one of the most important things for today. I mean, if we're really trying to track how well the system is working, how effectively people are being referred to services and who we're dealing with, particularly the amount of follow-up, it seems as though it would be good to know. But I understand um, that, that, that seems, it seems like this will be an ongoing conversation. Uh, but that, that is something that I think is really important. You know, data is going to tell us a lot of the story. And again, I, I just use my own personal when we've had to call a few times on people that are on the street, when we've asked for a street crisis response to come. And I mean, I saw him on the way in to work this morning, and I know I've called three times personally. So I, I can't imagine that, that, that my one individual would be one of the only few that would fall into the 19% that are having multiple interactions with your team. Okay, I, I, I think I made my point. Thank you, Chair. Can I, but if you want to add on to that, I go just, ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to follow up. You, you explained, um, uh, Chief Pam, Ping, that um, all of the fire department teams, so the, the four teams, they all use EPIC, so they can tell when each other is, is working with an individual. But do the other five teams also use EPIC? So our four teams do push information to Epic, but what we use is a custom-built database that all of our teams use. So we are able to see what each street team, uh, who, who has been touched on by each team and how many times. Okay, but, but does HSOC and HOT, okay, so you're all using the same system. That's correct. It the, is the, a very large number. It is a strangely large number. Um, okay, well, that's something to keep keep looking at. Thank you for the feedback and I will t take a, um, it wasn't, it, again, it's, it's, I think it was just mainly to say, you know, I'm a, I'm a numbers person when numbers don't make sense. Like right. that, that would be off. That's an off the chart. Eight out of 10 or the very first time you're interacting with them, not based on the population that we have on the street, particularly when you're responding 
you know, in these repeat areas over and over again. A lot of the people don't go very far from where they are because somehow they have some, some type of connection to either a service or a house or a community where they resided in or where they first became either drug addicted or... You know, I'm telling you all the stuff that you know. That's why this just doesn't make sense to me. I'm sorry. So we, we can come back to it. Okay. Thank you. Supervisor Chan? Thank you, uh, Chair Ronan. Uh, I, I, I think my question is very similar along the line what Chair Ronan have talked about earlier. Um, it's really, uh, I think uh, Chair Ronan uh, touched on the point about measuring success uh, in results and, and how do we show results and deliver the results. And what I, I think I, I would like to start off with perhaps is the uh, medium response time, which you show that you have decreased from 17 minutes to 14 minutes, then my question will be, um, if that is a gauge for success, what will be your ideal of response time for a situation like this for the street crisis response team? Thank you for the question, Supervisor. These are dispatched as code one calls, so um, anything under 30 minutes would be acceptable. Of course, the, the shorter the response time, the better. Um, 14 minutes, 14 to 15 minutes is, is an acceptable time in my opinion. Okay, uh, I'm, and, and I'm just kind of curious, like, uh, so besides the response time, and I think that also kind of touch on what uh, Vice Chair Safai was mentioning when it comes to the numbers, are there specific elements or, or key elements that when you um, come back to us and talk about, you know, the streets crisis response team that you actually are, are going to be these are the criteria, or these are the elements that you, you're going to look at, you want us to look at as a way to evaluate whether it's been successful or not. The question is, when we come back, what are the performance metrics that we would like to share with you? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. And, 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 what, and not, not only the performance metric, but within that, what is considered as success to you? For which team? Street crisis response or all of them? Yeah. Well, sure. Um, but street crisis response team is my focus. Thank you. Well, there are many. Uh, there are the basic ones, such as response times and um, number of calls that we've successfully um, responded to as an alternative to the police, because if we go, that means the police don't have to go. But um, long term, we would want to see how many people we successfully connected to resources, shelter, primary care, mental health care, and treatment. And we'd also like to see what graduation rates are like from all of these programs. Um, and, uh, and also whether 911 call volume has decreased for people experiencing homelessness, whether, whether um, ER overcrowding has decreased. So there are many different performance metrics that, that we'd like to see. Now, it's very, very difficult to get a lot of this information. Um, I'm looking forward to the Robert Wood Johnson uh, 
evaluation piece, which is a more of a, a quantitative analysis of how we're doing for street crisis response. I want to say that the very, the most difficult thing that I have to put my finger on for why it's difficult to improve street conditions is the fact that everything the city is doing, whether it's a social worker, or a community paramedic, a hospital, it is all entirely based on a somebody voluntarily accepting resources. And if we, we're only as good as we're resourced. It's, it's in, it, we've, we've seen that when we have a shelter in place hotel versus congregate shelter, it's much easier to get people to accept shelter. We know that if we had expanded intake hours, it would be easier. But there is not going to be a magic wand, no matter if we had 24-hour intake or not. It's very, very difficult and challenging. So we will work hard to have performance metrics to show you. But I have to say that the number one thing is the that we have to recognize that it is not entirely up to us. We cannot coerce people into change. Thank you. I, I totally understand that what you're saying. What I, I think I'm expressing a concern and I'm connecting the dots between uh, the response time versus from the slide showing that 47% that clients have left the area. So I, I, I'm trying to understand that is it because we need to decrease the response time, meaning you getting there faster, and therefore then we also decrease the percentage of clients leaving the area, or, or trying to help me understand, like, and, 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 and is there a coalition there, and how can we make that? Superv uh, Supervisor, this slide that you're referring to is not in front of me. I'm not, the 47%, um, I'm not sure which one, if that's Office of Care Coordination, or if those are the percentage of times when something is unable to locate or gone on arrival. I don't know. I really don't think we can improve much on the 14 minutes. When we go on a code three medical call, our, uh, we attempt to get there within 10 minutes. And that's when someone might be um, in a life-threatening situation. So I think 14 minutes is reasonable. One of the difficulties are that a lot of these calls, most of the calls are third-party callers where somebody is no longer even on scene. They just drove by. And they call 911, giving a, a description and a location, and we go. That person has indeed walked off. But it's very, it's very challenging if we don't have a reporting party that stays on scene and is continuing to visualize the individual they're calling for. And that's, that, that is a minority of cases. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Chair Ronan. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Um, I just did want to call out Commander Rachel Moran. Um, since I never met you in person, I didn't realize that was you. <laughs> it's so good to see you here. Thank you. Um, uh, Mr. Clerk, can you please, or Madam Clerk, can you please open this item up for public comment? Yes, at this moment, if you would like to uh, have uh, public comment on this in person, please line up along the windows. At this time, I'm not seeing anybody in person, potentially. 
No, I think uh, Joe Adkins, we can go to our virtual queue. Dear supervisors, I would not trust any data reported by SFPD as they have been known to not report or to skew reported data to support increased annual staffing budgets and overtime pay. There must be an objective third party in overseeing law enforcement data gathering, reporting, and analysis, most especially data that emerges from 911 calls. By design, annual law enforcement budgets must be decreased at the same rate that alternative street response teams are scaled up. Again, SFPD annual budgets would absolutely be expected to decrease year on year going forward with nine alternative street outreach teams. Thank you so much for this hearing. Thank you for your comments. Uh, Mr. Atkins, do we have anybody else in the queue? Hello, can you hear me? Madam Clerk, there are no further callers in the queue. I believe it appears that we might have someone on Microsoft Teams. Okay. Can you guys hear? Um, looks like we do have somebody in our virtual uh, Teams. Let me, uh, you are... Uh, Samuel Peoples, I believe. You are more than welcome to uh, start your public comments if you would like. Yes. Hello, President um, Walton, Chair Ronan, uh, Supervisor Mar, Supervisor Chan, Supervisor Safai. Um, I just wanted to respond. I'm with, I'm with Public Works. I just wanted to respond to uh, President, Ron excuse me, uh, Supervisor Ronan's uh, response or question around Public Works uh, needs. Uh, as these programs grow and, and as the city uh, are taking on upon new initiatives Mi around. Mr. People, sorry, this is uh, Supervisor Ronan. Uh, let me just close public comment um, since you're an employee of DPW. Oh. I, I, please just stay right there. I'm just going to close public comment. Oh, There's we, no more. Public... We do have one more person in the queue. One oh, more. I'm sorry. One more. Mr. Peoples, if you could stay right there. Okay. Um, I'm going to call you up and I'm going to call up Commander Moran to say a few words right after Thank this, you. but let me just close public comment. Okay. Thank you. Um, Madam okay. Clerk, is there one we more? We do have one more person. Uh, Joe Adkins, would you mind putting that, that caller forward? So supervisors and... Uh, all those who are involved with uh, the citywide street team uh, service calls and services. I think what's missing is uh, a sound needs assessment. And I see from uh, the teams that are providing the services, we don't have uh, racial equity. And this is a fundamental flaw. We have people, the same people, trying to do a job for which they are not qualified. We do not have, uh, when it comes to our emergency services, uh, anybody qualified and experienced uh, as like a commander. So it uh, uh, goes down the line, down the ladder, we have people that they can talk a good talk, 
but they cannot walk a walk. So uh, we have $13.7 billion. We waste money, and we just talk about it, and the supervisors also talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. But our quality of life issues in this city has gone to the hogs. Thank you for your comments. Mr. Atkins, are there anybody else in the queue? Madam Clerk, there are no further callers in the queue. Okay, thank okay, you. Public comment is closed. Mr. Peoples, did you want to continue? Yes, thank you. Appreciate it. I just wanted to just kind of respond to your inquiry or, uh, regarding public works' uh, capacity. Um, I had a conversation to, today regarding you know, um, where we are with, with our de department uh, deputy director of operations. And uh, there is a need for some funding regarding uh, additional uh, equipment and staff for some of these initiatives that we're doing because um, we're, we're kind of just working with our general bu budget funding that we, we haven't had any increases for so all these initiatives that are being proposed right now. And I just wanted to, you know, share that and then respond to, to that. I really appreciate you bringing that up because that's a uh, tight spot for uh, public works. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's definitely going to be something we're going to laser focus on during the budget process. So thanks, thanks for coming out and, and speaking. And then Commander Moran, I know you wanted to say, to make a comment. Good afternoon, uh, supervisors, and thank you for having us as part of the conversation today. And uh, Chair Ronan, thank you especially for taking this under your wing. I know you're a driving force behind this succeeding. Um, I wanted to bring forth Lieutenant Mario Molina, who is the officer in charge of our CIT unit. And basically, he is our subject matter expert when it comes to mental health and CIT response. Um, and he's going to speak to some of the things that were spoken to today if, and, and just briefly. Good afternoon, everyone. Chair Ronan, Supervisor Safi, Supervisor Walton, Supervisor Shan, uh, Chief Nichols, Director Carroll, and Director uh, Smuts, and Chief Bank. Um, thank you for having uh, the police department here, at least to speak a few minutes about what actually is going on with the police department and the mental health calls. Um, I heard a lot about calls for service, but uh, in order to understand what actually happens on the street, I think I have to give you a little historical perspective of what the police department has been doing for the last four years. So um, if I may, I can read some of the information that I have. Um, in 20, oh, I'm sorry. Can you hear me? Okay. So historically, in 2018, the San Francisco Police Department responded to 50,000 612 calls of people in crisis in the city and county of San Francisco. Uh, 23,000 were specific to a person in crisis, and that includes 800, 801, 800 mentally disturbed person, 801, a person attempting suicide, 806, a juvenile beyond parental control, 5150, mental health detention, and that's when a clinician on somebody in the medical field will call dispatch and says, hey, I have my client in my office. I'm going to 5150 the person. 
can you send the police department? So um, of those calls in 2018, um, they were included in the 800s. So the um, night tents were 26,978 26, with a total of 50,612. In 2019, the police department responded to 50,840 calls. Once again, crisis calls, 21,860. 800 calls, which is part of the crisis calls, 16,542. Night tents, check on the well-being, there was 28,980. In 2020, there was a total of 49,578 calls. Crisis calls involved 20,950, 800s, uh, which is the topic of this discussion, so 800 Bs, 800 As, 16,451. Check on the well-being, 28,628. In 2021, and I'll stop there, um, the total calls were 47,242. Crisis calls were 19,830. 800 calls, there were 15,337. And night tents check on the well-being, 27,412 calls. As you can see, it's been consistent. The difference is about 1,000 to 2,000 calls. What I, we noticed in the police department, and I want to thank the fire department, the EM, for keeping track of the calls. And we definitely want to support them and want all these programs to succeed because there should be other teams responding to these calls and not just the police department. So I just want to make sure that people understand that that's our goal and the chief's goals when it comes to people in mental health crisis. The only difference that I've seen, at least from the police department perspective, is 2,336 calls from the year before to this year. So um, I'm here to support whatever program the city is implementing, but we want to be part of the conversation, I think, because we've been in the game, we've been playing the game, and I think we have the infrastructure to, to deal with the situations. And it should be important that the police department has a voice on how these infrastructures that we're building now for a better future, and especially for people that are uh, afflicted by mental health in the city and county of San Francisco, is very important. There's one in four families gets affected by mental health. And another, um, a lot has been said about uh, trauma-informed respond, responding for offering different teams. But the San Francisco the Police Department invests over 80 hours on mental health training for our officers. And they also are trauma-informed. And the way they were responding to this calls, it has changed the culture of the San Francisco Police Department. Last year, as I said, we went to uh, 47,242 mental health-related incidents. We only used force in 44 incidents. Let me say that again. We went to 47,242 mental health-related incidents. Force was used in only 44. So we didn't use force in 99.9% of the calls for service. And those calls involve persons that are attempting suicide that obviously we have to stop from hurting themselves or persons that were armed and that we have to take certain precautions for their safety, the safety of the public, and the safety of the officers. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, so I just wanted to make those points and make sure that everybody knows the work that this FPD has done. Absolutely, and um, I think we were, we were reading the same statistics that the, the chief had written back to me. Um, and and, and I, I appreciate your comments, uh, Lieutenant 
Melina, because I think, you know, uh, it's a good it's a good wrap up to this to this meeting, and that um, we all agree that that police should not be the primary first responders to incidents of people experiencing mental illness, substance use disorder, or just not having a place to live. It, uh, and unfortunately, not only here in San Francisco, but all over the country, our system has been set up where police have been the primary first responders. Um, and I, I'm so proud of us as a city, all of us, um, for really trying to move in, in, in a different direction. Um, and I, I know that we've started that work, uh, you know, for a long time here in San Francisco, but we're, we're ramping it up to, to, to a large systemic transfer of work from the police department to the fire department and the health department. And, um, and, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a heavy lift. Um, and it's one that I, I really truly believe we can be successful at, um, but we need to we need to we need to have that 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 shift in 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 numbers, and we need to see the difference on the street. And I'll, I will just end by also saying I know we're going to have a hearing on CART, uh, which is the community-led response, which has not been implemented yet. But I believe, you know, for, for some of the, the priority C calls, too, in some of these areas, we can shift that work from the police department to, to community. So I really, I do believe we can, we can, we can make a big difference in this area um, and that that will ultimately make a big difference in people's health and in what the conditions that people witness in the streets. Um, so I want to thank you all again, collectively, for your e extraordinary work, and and we'll we'll keep moving uh, uh, in hopefully the right direction. Um, and with that, um, I would like to thank you, Supervisor. Thank you so much. Make a motion uh, to um, continue this item to the call of the chair in case we need to bring it back uh, uh, at any time to this committee if we can have a roll call, call vote on that motion. Yes, uh, roll call vote uh, to um, motion this to the, uh, the call of the chair. To continue this item to the call of the chair, yes. Okay, on that motion, uh, Vice Chair Safai. Safai, aye. Uh, Member Marr is absent. Member Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Member Walton. Aye. Walton, aye. Chair Ronan? Aye. Ronan, aye. Motion passes. Thank you so much. And is there any other items on the agenda today? That completes our business. The meeting is adjourned.